Hey everybody, welcome to Musicology, the podcast that gets behind how music's made. I'm your host, K-Mac, where we'll dive inside how creativity happens and the tips, tricks, and secrets behind some artists that I'd like you to get to know better. So stay tuned as we unpack the suitcase of rock. Rock, rock. Hey everybody, K-Mac here, also known as Kevin McKee. Thank you for joining uh, the podcast. Uh, I have the pleasure today of having a very illustrious guest, Mr. Chris Malinowski, who is the leader or, uh, I guess, founder of The Collingwood, one of his most recent bands, as well as a film auteur director extraordinaire. So we're going to get behind not only music today, but also some film and uh, get to know Chris and his projects a little bit better. So Chris, welcome. Thank you for having me, Kevin. We've known each other for a long time. Yeah, it's a strange story. Uh, shall we go into that? Sure. You know, I took guitar lessons from your dad's shop when I was a teenager, and that's the first time I think I ever met you and your family. You, you were obviously a lot younger than me, but then I, I saw you playing a few bands throughout the, uh, the 80s and 90s, and uh, I think even a couple of your sisters lived in the same apartment complex I did back in the day, too. Well, we did. Actually, me and my mother lived in English Village, and that's how I first remember you. Mm -hmm. Because you reminded me of that time of, of, of Michael Keaton in Mr. Mom, for some reason. <laughs> I'll, I'll and take I that. Never, <laughs> yeah, which, you know, it's, I'll take that any day also. And, and you were just someone that we would pass every once in a while. Okay, Kevin's really nice. And it wasn't until Drew and Adam Keen... Mm -hmm kind of said that you you knew them or something i'm like kevin mckee who are you talking about right and then you appeared when i think seeing the collingwood yep and then we started talking again yeah it was quite a few years and uh just to borrow the michael keaton line 210 220 whatever it takes so <laughs> a cute martin mole yeah exactly and, yeah and the <laughs> chainsaw side smirk what's that <laughs> and the chainsaw what a great oh, scene yeah, exactly i have one right now <laughs> oh, perfect. I'm so handy. <laughs> okay, all Michael Keaton jokes aside, uh, I do want to talk about some of your new projects, both in music and film, um, and we'll probably take them in different segments of the interview, but can we talk about your uh, latest music and, and maybe your latest film projects, but let's take the music projects first and hit the film projects later in the interview, if that's okay with you. Sure, absolutely. Uh, the Collingwood will be recording a new record with Rich Degnars at Dasa Studios in Pike Creek, which is where we did our previous two albums. Uh, and the record is tentatively titled Leo after, oh. yeah, our, our dog son who passed this past year. So that will be a full length record. Um, and got some new material, plus some of the material that we've been doing for years, like Barracuda and Eggs, mm -hmm. um, and Houston Torch, and a number of others that have been in the set list that we haven't committed to record yet. Well, excited to hear the new material when you get to that. And I'm, uh, I never met Leo, but I saw lots of pictures and films, and uh, what a great dog. Sorry. Yeah, oh, absolutely, man. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a, a question I like to ask people just to get these podcasts warmed up after we, uh, you know, get to know each other. Uh, you, you know, tell me a little bit about the band. Who else is in the Collingwood? And uh, maybe we can talk about some of the principal people you work with in film, too, just to set up who are the key players in the projects that you're part of. 
Absolutely. Okay, so now it's it's me on guitar and vocals, then Jim Pennington on on guitar and background vocals, James Barouche, Jamie Barouche, he loves being mentioned on these things, <laughs> on drums, and Greg Lundmark on bass, guitar, Big Red. and background vocals. Yes. And I don't know if you folks have caught this band, but uh, it is equal parts. Uh, I, I don't want to. It's a very hard genre to describe, but it, it has the sweaty sexuality of soul with some of the uh, underpinnings of like Greg Dooley's Afghan wigs and the instrumental. And boy, you guys are very complex in your timings and and the harmonies and interplay of the instruments. Uh, it's quite something to see if you haven't caught the Collingwood, I must say. Thank you very much. No, I big... feel like I write everything in 4-4 time, you know, because I, I come from a heavy metal background. And mm -hmm. I'm always thinking that I'm writing in 4-4 time, but it turns out that I'm not. I'm mm -hmm. clueless. Uh, somehow I doubt that, but I love your uh, naivete there. <laughs> That's great. So so is there anybody uh, else you want to talk about in the film process? Any longtime collaborators uh, as we, as we yeah, talk about both? Sure, sure. There's Colby Bartine, who edited uh, both... Well, no, he edited one Collingwood video, which is the White Deer video, and then he edited uh, Yes, Your Tide is Cold and Dark, Sir, which was probably my second film. Uh, it's my first feature because mm -hmm. it's over two hours, and the film before that was the feature at Alms, you say, and that was 33 minutes. That was actually shot on film, and I edited that in New York with Ben Witten of Madhouse, mm -hmm. and Ben Witten edited the fuck yeah hollywood video by the collingwood but both white deer yes you titus cold and dark sir and fuck yeah hollywood were filmed were shot by bob stewart bob stewart is a man that i met at ithaca college mm -hmm. and bob has also been in in quite quite a few of the films actually he's been in almost all of my films so he's he's uh he's a biggie um and who else was I going to mention here? And then, of course, Alan Burkhart uh, financed mm -hmm. Yesterday Tide is Cold and Dark. So without him, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and gosh, what other key players? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of a nice IMDb credit that I have pulled up that lists oh, yeah. other people. Yeah, so. if you pull that up. Sure, go it, ahead. Sorry. A, no, I, no, I, I wasn't going to pull it up. I was just going to point people to it to check out. You know, your name, Chris Malinowski, or yes, your tide is cold, uh, and you can find out a lot of the details. You know, because sometimes it's hard to hit everybody, and you know, you want to leave anybody, don't want to leave anybody out. Yeah, because I will be scolded afterwards. <laughs> Remember when I did this for you for free or whatever, you know, and then, and then, then they're out on the next project because I didn't mention their name. Oh, you know that happens sometimes. but Oh, uh, it does. Yeah, it does happen. And uh, we just didn't want to slight anybody. So check out that IMDB reference for Yes, Your Tide is Cold and Dark, Sir. And check out the full cast of characters that helped Chris make this uh, remarkable film. So let's switch over to music again for a moment, and let's talk about songwriting. How, how does the songwriting process and the music process work? And then we can talk about the film process a little bit later. How's that work for you? You know, I, I, I don't play guitar as much, nearly as much as I did when I was, you know, 18 years old, or even in, uh, as much as I did in my 30s. Because uh, in my 20s, I kind of like, after the absurd which was the second band that i was in i kind of put it down for a while when i went away to film school mm -hmm. i transferred from the university of delaware to ithaca college in ithaca new york and i just wanted to do that you know i'd kind of lost interest in music a little bit um but now 
to write a song, it's done exactly like I did it when I was like 14, you know, which is I sit down with a guitar and I just noodle, you know, and, and I come up with a riff that I really dig. And then I start humming over it mm -hmm. and singing phonetic sounds. And sometimes, you know, when I'm running or something else, a phrase will come into my head. And, and oftentimes it makes absolutely no sense at all. And it'll be, uh, so it'll be an incongruous sentence or something like that. And then I try to make sense out of it um, and go, okay, well, where's the song going? What's it about really? And, you know, it turns out that this could be something related to my parents' relationship, or this could be related to a car accident that I saw when I was seven years old or something like that. And I just roll with it. I, and then I, I, I will get to rehearsal and say, okay, this is what I'm thinking here's the beat that I'm hearing. These are the lines that I'm hearing behind it. If you don't like it, don't do that. But this is kind of what I'm feeling. And then we just kind of go from there. Okay. So it's, it's very much an organic process from, from your primary instrument, the guitar. And then it evolves oh, yeah. forward as you described. Are there any exceptions to that? Like did the ever jams come up in the Collingwood or are there alternative ways that songs come about? There haven't been for a while. Uh, and I'm not opposed to it. For the longest time, I was, mm -hmm. you know, and I felt like my 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 hands were so tight on the process that mm -hmm. I, I I think I strangle I strangle a lot of members out of the band. Is what would happen. <laughs> so now I'd rather be friends with the people that I'm playing with. And and actually, it's ironic that you're asking that question because I texted those guys not long ago and said, no, what we need to do is just sit down one day and just improvise something and see what comes out of it mm -hmm. and keep it. But I should say that, you know, although I write some of the, some of the other lines, it's not all the time that way. Like Jim comes up with his own stuff. Greg might come up with his own stuff. Greg hasn't been in the band all that long, only a couple of years. Right. And Jamie comes up with his own stuff. So, um, the album, the latest album, the yesterday is cold and dark, sir soundtrack and score which is half rock music and half score music that's all me i played all the instruments and did the vocals and except for rich rich degnars came in and did the drums for it and and then also some guest vocalists and such and mm -hmm. hallie boyle played on it hallie boyle used to be the violist for the collingwood mm -hmm. so takes a village both in music and film but uh, it's interesting for me to to get behind how people who make music enjoy uh work the process because uh i think a lot of people who just go to shows they take it for granted and that's one of the goals of this podcast is to get behind the tips and tricks and how people actually get get the sausage made as it were uh-huh well in my case vegan sausage <laughs> vegan sausage exactly <laughs> i should have made that point no, uh, speaking of being a dead vegan horse yes Oh yeah, right. Uh, yeah, d uh, uh, vegan horse don't run very fast. But anyway, that's another <laughs> story. Um, yeah, so let's let's talk about music uh, a little bit further back in time. Uh, we got an idea how you how you songwrite primarily, but what got you the bug uh, either for film or music uh, earliest in your life? Was it a person, an experience, a movie? What what how, when did you know, and what was it that drove you to say, "Aha, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do music and and or film." Uh. My, you know, my father being a musician, my father was a guitar teacher, a piano teacher, a drum teacher, and also woodwind brass teacher, you know, at Mouse Music on Kirkwood Highway. And so music was in our house all of the time. My mother also listened to the Beatles and the Stones and such. And so that music was playing pretty incessantly. Uh, 
and we had this little uh, turntable and we had Jim Croce records and Jim Croce was the first music that I heard wherein, you know, I said, this is what I want to do. I want to play guitar. And we had a, a smile. I think my dad had a guitar that he had in the shop that he brought home and I would pound on it and pretend like I was singing, you know, you don't mess around with Jim. Yeah. Love that song. And Bad, Bad, Leroy Brown. I know they're great. It's great music. Um, it, it, it's funny. My therapist, I saw a therapist for a long time in Philadelphia, John Snyder, his mm -hmm. His companion, his partner, was good friends with Jim Croce and had hung out with him for years and years and years. And he had written a song for her. And I was just blown away when I heard this. This is only like five years ago I heard this. And I thought, geez, Jim Croce was you know, my idol Very when I was cool. a kid. So my father introduced that. And he started me on drums. And we had a little drum kit in my bedroom in Pennsylvania. And <clears throat> then from there... I discovered Casey and the Sunshine Band. <laughs> Another fan. And I, yeah, and I saw them on TV, and I saw, you know, they had a big brass section, and everyone dressed so cool, the pastel leisure suits and the and the bell bottoms, and he just really commanded the band, you know, and and the band, you know, the horn players like doing the choreography and such. And I thought, man, this is super cool. So I bought. That's the first album that I bought for myself. I think it was at a Strawbridge and Clothier when they sold records <laughs> for a pennies or something. It was I, I can't remember where it was. And uh, do a little dance. Second, yeah, exactly. Make a little love. And Get I bought down. the second Casey and the Sunshine album, uh, Sunshine Band album. And my father had the music at his store, so I got to see what they looked like all the time. And I took the sheet music home, and I would look at the picture and. And then from there, you know, of course, I discovered Kiss, our, our, our babysitter at that time, Jane Policaro, Joe's sister, Joe Policaro, right. who was in the Nazarites and is still around this area, a musician. Um, his sister would babysit us, and she brought a Kiss album to our house. It was the Kiss Destroyer record. That's the one and I once, heard first, too. Yeah, and, and once I heard those songs, I thought, oh my gosh, she explained who the band was, and I remember her explaining Detroit Rock City to me and what that meant, and my parents were out at night, and, and it was, you know, it's mysterious when somebody comes into your house and they're introducing this, and you're away from your parents, and it's night, and it was very exciting to me to be here, able to hear about this, and then that Christmas, my father bought me hotter than hell so the first kiss album that i i listened to in its entirety was actually hotter than hell mm -hmm. and then he bought me dressed to kill and alive and then my parents took me to see kiss in december 22nd 1977 at the spectrum and billy squires band piper opened <laughs> and it was great was that, that was the rock so and roll over tour i might have been at the same show you're at no i know what you're talking about though because bob seeger i think opened at that show didn't you're right or, yeah now that you mention it you're right yeah and this was the, no, you know what it was? It was the Kiss Alive 2 tour, because it would have been the second leg of the Love Gun tour. They were calling it the Kiss Alive 2 right. tour. And that's that's when I saw them. And I saw them on the Dynasty tour, which was 1979. Mm -hmm. And that kind of made me fall in love with and that was probably what made me say okay i want to be a musician i mm -hmm. want to play music and then well god there's count countless other bands that i became obsessed with after that obviously but oddly we uh, have that, that was the initial yeah oddly we have that in common i still have a 70s kiss belt buckle with the sparkly um saving it for something i'm not sure what but uh 
I definitely was a big fan too, along with Aerosmith and Zeppelin and all the bands of that, that era. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But there was something about the show and the makeup and the mystique and the characters that kind of had a Hollywood, um, I don't know, science fiction, almost kind of thing to it for me. I don't know. Yeah. And they cared. It was like, and the colors, the, like the black and silver. And that's what you were kind of like bombarded with that, you know, and from afar, you know, a little kid from afar, you're going, Oh my God! I could touch these guys. I'm, I'm breathing the same air they're breathing. I can't believe they're they're moving in front of me at this point. Uh, and 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 other people who who saw Kiss, you know, at that age, I'm sure. Well, you obviously saw the Rock and Roll Over Tour. You beat me, man. That's great. Well, I'm older. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was yeah, I was about seven or eight. Uh-huh. And 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 I you know I, I had this friend named Meredith Gold in California when I was interning at sony studios as a film student she kind of took me under her wing and showed me at los angeles and she had had a similar experience and she she saw them at the la forum i guess on the kiss alive 2 tour mm-hmm. and she said i barely remember anything because i was so blown away by the fact that they were in front of me yeah you know yeah that legend that would never goes away or that that feeling of that never goes away for me well, all the theatrics too that you know when we added to the music, and I'll, I'll add, I I wouldn't be playing guitar if it wasn't for some of their songs being fairly learnable and accessible to somebody who was in their early yeah you know age in the preteen teen era. You know, I could have learned Zeppelin stuff the way I learned uh, Kiss songs. So sure, yeah, and Zeppelin was in like my father bought me the Song Remains the Same album also when I was younger, and then you know I started to get into. Uh, Rush for a couple of years was a band that I loved. I had the mm. Archives album, so it had the Fly By Night and Rush and Caress of Steel, and then I eventually got 2112 and those albums. The first album that I bought for that from them was Permanent Waves. Yep, same. Because Yeah, and it was on Main Street. It was a play, what was the record store on Main Street? Burt's before back Rainbow. then, or Rain, Burt's maybe? Or? Uh, was it not played again? It was, uh, you, uh, like it like, was it like you like it like that record? Yeah, that I like it like that maybe. Yeah. Oh no. You know what? That's a lie. I I got it at the mall. I got it at listening booth. I think at the mall, and then we went to Main Street. I think I saw it there. Okay. I don't know. Some I'm fucking the story up. But anyway, so and then the Scorpions. It was or ACDC, and I was a big fan of Angus Young. And then the Scorpions. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a local band. Uh, you remember Phil Malaprevo and Steve Gilley. Yeah. Par- Paragon. Yeah. yeah. And they and my fa- and first defense after that, uh, they. They covered the Scorpions "Falling in Love" from the mm-hmm. Animal Magnetism record, and I I heard that song, and I was like, what, "Who is this group?" And what I liked about the Scorpions was there's this again the mystique. Mm-hmm. There are these guys who kind of look like Euro models, like like maybe not even ever every member of the band, but they looked very different than I looked as a kid. And I thought, "Who are these guys?" And their music sounded so romantic, but a dark romance. It sounded like just this bedroom drama you know was going on in all of their songs and i was so enraptured by songs like animal magnetism and and uh make it real and all and lady starlight and uh there's one track on that god i can't remember the name of it right now but uh that band really had a major impact on me. The Scorpions, Love, Love Drive, and, and Blackout, and Animal Magnetism. Yeah, the Schenker, uh, Schenker was quite a guy, right? Michael Schenker? Yeah. Yeah, and, and Rudy, you know, his mm-hmm. brother. I, I, I don't know if you've seen that Scorpions documentary, but 
that's out on I can't care again I can't remember the name of it uh, made by a female filmmaker it is if you're a Scorpions fan at all you have to kind of go back and look at it because it's just extraordinary mm-hmm. well then you know I, I'd started forming bands when I was younger like Ezra but we can get into that after a while but Ezra Purgatory Freak Show and then obviously The Absurd and, mm-hmm. and uh, The Collingwood but those bands, uh, bands like Accept, but that was another band that I was obsessed with. You remember this band? Yes, Falls I do. to the Wall and yep. wrestling. again, West German rock band. Um, and you know, I listened to bands like Motley Crue, the first two records I sure. like. I love Theater Pain. Love the, the yeah the the, the first uh, the first two uh, Def Leppard albums, On Through the Night and High and Dry. Mm-hmm. I still really like. Mm-hmm. I love bands like Thin Lizzy and Saxon, but I just don't listen to it that much anymore. Thin Lizzy is probably the band out of anyone that I mentioned that I listen to more than any of that, the, the heavier music that I mentioned. Phil, man, yeah. Boys Are Back in Town. What a great, great uh, tune. Yeah, and if you listen to their use of, I hope this doesn't sound boring, but their use of like major seventh and minor seventh chords, and mm-hmm. it's not a musician-y thing to me. It's, it's also the beauty of, all of the bands in the in the in the uh, yacht rock genre, uh, bands like America and Firefall and Ambrosia and Climax Blues Band and um, Atlanta Rhythm Section, those those chords are so rich when I hear them. To this moment, any band using them, I just feel like hugging because I think, boy, you you again, it's that romantic, dark, mystical sound, you know. Right, and I think so much rock we grew up on with was so blues based and you know major pentatonic, minor pentatonic. Not to get too music nerdy, but you know it, it definitely when you bring those other voices in, it adds texture and harmony and all kinds of sophistication that you know pleases my ear too. Yeah, and and uh, my friend, it's what my friend Bill Ackerman, who also has a great film podcast supporting characters, uh, Bill Ackerman is a, a kind of a tastemaker for me and really helped me out helped me to learn about new genres of music and film. I met him at Ithaca College. Mm-hmm. But it's what he would refer to, all of what you just described as the boogie, the boogie rock shit. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's just kind of like that same kind of fast blues. And and there's nothing wrong with it. You know, there's it's just I'd rather hear, you know, if I'm listening to someone like Boston, I'd rather hear peace of mind than, uh, you smoking. know, smoking or something. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, there you go. You picked it right out. There's the differences. Yeah, even a blind uh, pig gets an acorn once in a while, but I, I think I'm following you. Yeah, and and I do like blues music. I just like the, kind of the darker blues music like Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, mm-hmm. you know. Way before the Buckingham Knicks era. Yeah, and which I also appreciate, obviously. Yeah, but it's just two different animals completely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Very cool. You know, I, I knew you, I knew you have some other tastes too that developed later in life, but uh, mm-hmm. it's really kind of cool to to sit down and you know hear hear what what drove you uh, early on and gave the foundation to your you know because you're I don't know if you haven't seen Chris play guitar he's you know fantastic um, that's what you actually do for a living right oh thank you so much for say, saying that I often don't feel like my chops are anywhere near they were when I was you know even when I was like sixteen. Uh, that's what I do for a living. Yes, I teach guitar for a living. I, I, I've had other jobs also. I worked for Amazon.com. I worked for Wachovia mm-hmm. Bank. Um, and I would do that again. I, you know, they weren't bad jobs. I, I, you know, I had made some good friends at those places. But uh, teaching guitar is something I started to do when I was 
God, my father, I mean, the first guitar lesson I think I ever taught, I might have been like 11 or 12 years old, and it was because I could read actual music notes. Mm. So my father would have me do it for free. In fact, he made me do it for free until he felt like I was a substantial teacher and that I could follow a lesson plan. Wow. So, Taskmaster now. Yeah, and he was cool about it, you know, and then, but, you know, by the time I was 14, 15 years old, when I was playing in Purgatory pre-freak show, I had, you know, a decent student base and, you know, meaning like maybe 10 people or something. But at that point, I think I was making, you know, $8 a student or something. And that was, you know, those 80 bucks, you know, I wouldn't have had otherwise. I was never a good saver, so I really never had any money anyway. But, mm. <laughs> but now, yeah, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have the students that I had, you know, and, and, and I get so addicted to everybody's personality and their personas because they're so much more than guitar students. Mm -hmm. They're just interesting people. You know, I can't even tell you, I, I, I always feel like I could write, you know, a chapter on each student just because they're interesting people. They're dynamic with me and they're dynamic with their careers or with their life. And some of them are seven years old. Some of them are 70 years old. And there's just so much to say about them, how they, not only how they approach the music, but how they approach their lives, either young or old. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I taught martial arts for a while, so I think that there is something that's. Um, if, if it was just about doing the art, whether it's guitar playing or or martial arts, I think I would have quit the first year. I think it's the relationships and helping people move from point A to point B that I find uh, uh, especially uh, rewarding about that. Or uh, yeah, and to say to them, hey, you know, anyone can do this. Please, anyone can do this. This isn't about talent. It's about you sitting down and just being bored like the rest of us sat around bored learning this, you know, sitting in our rooms at age 14, knowing that we're never going to have a date, you know, working, you know, five to six hours on a, on a, on a riff from a song and hoping that we get better. And that's, I, I try to demystify the instrument for people and to make it manageable. And I'm extremely patient and I try to, mm -hmm. you know, involve humor much like my father did. My father was a little more harsh definitely spoke his mind more and also you know surprisingly would let people smoke and drink in his store <laughs> right dear mr bennett anyway mr val well yeah mr bennett yeah, yeah I, well i took I, he, he worked in your dad's store and that's the guy that gave me my entree to the guitar formally oh yeah no actually you know actually it was bennett's store oh was it it was Bennett's. It was Dick Bennett's store and Dick Bennett's books. I know. I had his. Uh, I still have his books. Rest yeah. He, so it was his store, and he taught my father guitar. My father played piano, um, and and Bennett taught my dad and thought he was a quick learner and had my father teach lessons. And then my father, my father lost the job. He worked for Matlack uh -huh. uh, for years and had some kind of a falling out, and then started teaching full time in the early eighties. Okay. And that's how he kind of took it over. <laughs> So, yeah, Mr. Bennett, I'll have to have a quick moment of uh, appreciation for him. He was uh, when I when I met him, he had to have been in his 70s and he would probably drink whiskey and play golf most of the time. But then he would pick up a guitar and it would turn into a, a symphony. This guy would, could could make my crappy Sears classical guitar sound like God's living room. man. he was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He, I've only I only met him like two times, and I think we went to his house, and he looked like Walt Disney. Exactly. 
Yeah, and he I remember him making little jokes with me and such and he was a very quick talker. I thought was he from New England or was it sounded like a Boston accent or something? I, I couldn't really tell. Yeah, you're probably right. That uh, I don't know, I don't recall. Yeah, and it was so, you know, my I re, but you know when my parents divorced, I started going down to that store with my father cuz my father had license to see us on Wednesdays and he would bring me out there and I started to play with young musicians at that time Jason Croyder being one of the first people that I ever played with who mm-hmm. I'm still in touch with him we ended up playing in the absurd together and um it was cool that's kind of where it all started at his store because he hooked me up with people and then of course Eric Bolin um who was also in in the Collingwood. I don't know how when you want to get into any of this stuff, but well, hey, it's a conversation, man, not a monologue. So I, uh, we can do whatever you want. Uh, I'm, I'm down. Okay. So, so we could we could take a, a a left turn and talk about how you get into film too, or we could talk sure. about all the music at once and all the film at once. Which would you prefer? No, we could talk about film now, and then we'll go back, come back around. Sure. Yeah. So, so let's talk about film in the same way. How 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 and when did you d- decide that you were going to be, you know, not just a musician but a a director, an auteur, a, a screenwriter. I, I think you've worn all the hats being an independent guy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Except, except for paying for it. Except for, I did pay for alms, you say. You played in friend, blood. I, I paid for it. I, I, I actually paid out of my own pocket and a lot of credit cards for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my friend Bill Ackerman gave me, I think, $3,000 and he helped me out immensely. But mm-hmm. uh, it started with, Again, right around the time of my parents' divorce, I'm sure I was very vulnerable emotionally at this time. I was, and feeling very inadequate. Uh, my father, right before they divorced, my father took me to see a triple bill at a drive-in. I'd become obsessed with seeing horror movies that all that very much scared me. And he took me to see a film called Blackout, which is a Canadian drama. Uh, Blackout, The Warriors, and Phantasm. Mm-hmm. And I think The Warriors was kind of the headlining film, and it was played, it was at 202 Drive-In. Um, and then Phantasm played, and after seeing Don Coscarelli's Phantasm, I was, I, I could not believe, I became so obsessed with this film. Have you seen this film, the first one? Yeah, that was uh, okay. pretty pretty groundbreaking and frightening, if I recall. For, for the oh, era. yeah. And, and ironically, I'd worked as a film student. I worked on Phantasm Four in Los Angeles. Well, it was actually shot in Lone Pine out in the desert in in uh, in, in California. But coming back to that, the next day, I told all my friends about. It. I walked around the neighborhood and I would try to, you know, act out scenes for them. And I was obsessed with the relationship between the tall man and Michael and uh, and mm-hmm. the two characters from the film. And then eventually, you know, had a friendship a long-term friendship with Angus Scrim, uh, the tall man from the film. I met him several times, and he was very nice to me on the set of Phantasm Four, and oh, cool. helped me out quite a bit when I was out there, bought me some food, and um, yeah, there's a lot of connections to Phantasm, but that started it. And then there was another film, that film My Bodyguard with uh, Chris Makepeace. Do you remember that film? And Adam, Is it Adam Baldwin who was in that also? I think you it's may be right, Bill yeah. film. That film was another film that I had seen. And I, I, I have a diary entry from it. <laughs> I don't know why. I think it's a diary when I, in 1981. That was another film that I had seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I started to watch films over and over and over again. And then when I was in Freak Show, um, 
we would practice five nights a week at this place in Maryland, this warehouse in Maryland. And I would go home at night and watch two or three films a night mm -hmm. just by myself until the sun was coming up. And I discovered that I really liked film as much as I liked music and really drawn to the music, the music and Phantasm, especially Ma Malcolm Seagraves uh, and Fred Myro's score to that film really turned me on. Mm -hmm. And uh, it got to the point where I, st I was obsessed with horror movies. And then I got interested in drama. Uh, I, I started going to the University of Delaware and we took a film class with Harris Ross and Judith Ruth. Uh, Harris Ross, unfortunately, just passed. He was a great film professor at Delaware. And I, I think this is the first time I ever saw a Woody Allen film. And that was Annie Hall. Mm -hmm. And then I saw another film by a guy named Adam Agoyan, this Canadian director. This was on my own, called Speaking Parts. And after seeing Speaking Parts, I was completely enraptured with film. And I thought, that's what made me want to make films. Probably Speaking Parts was the first one. So, so those are some, uh, you know, more well-known and some more obscure uh, references. Can you, can you help me understand for some of the more obscure ones, what was it about those films that grabbed you? And what was it that made such an impression on you that made you move that direction? Well, something like Speaking Parts, I didn't understand it altogether all at first mm -hmm. and i felt like uh again there was a mystery that i wasn't privy to and even when the film ended i didn't feel fully satisfied like the story had come to a close properly but that's what i liked about it you know i felt like i was on the outside looking in and i felt well how can i get in that door mm -hmm. how can i get involved and there was an atmosphere to that film especially um that drew me in mm -hmm. um you have to watch it too I, I adam mcgoyan made a, a series of films um he's still making films actually but speaking parts is probably my favorite one by him um i guess i wanted to penetrate an atmosphere to which i wasn't privy okay you know, i wanted to be let behind the curtain so it wasn't you know i hear a lot of people talk about films like star wars as then that wasn't one that interested me you know i did see it when i was a kid and i still like the movie but i haven't seen it that many times mm -hmm. um i also love steven soderbergh's sex lies and videotape that's definitely my favorite american film pretty well shot then, little uh, adventure there oh yeah i love that movie and there's you know if you, you that that film has no sex <laughs> a lot of lies and a lot of videotape but no sex at all it's, mm -hmm. well it's not seen you know, it's not real sexual. So, so I heard you saying before too. It seems like the the, the film that it violated the Western narrative, not Soderbergh's film, but the previous one, Speaking Parts. Uh, it, it was definitely not a typical Hollywood Western narrative where you have this protagonist and the problem and the resolution. Everybody rides off in the sunset. It's more mysterious and uh, maybe even episodic. Is that a is that a good way to look at it? Well, you know, it it, it felt like peril in domesticity it just felt like you know drama taking place in rooms like bedrooms or living rooms or somebody's backyard okay I, I think it's one of the things that appealed to me I and mean, there's so many films that i could go off and off on here but i'm just naming a few key well, same thing with same thing with phantasm you know phantasm yes there is a science fiction element to it mm -hmm. but none of that interested me what interested me was a boy in his bedroom at night just being a boy 
right you know in suburbia because that's what i was and he's vulnerable in this film he you know he lost his parents mm -hmm. you know and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm waxing poetic about the film these are elements that people don't seem to notice about it but mm -hmm. except for certain certain friends of mine who are film enthusiasts like bill or my friend Kristen dean um guy thorpe uh that that's the stuff that interested me because who who knew that you know something like something like a living room could be magical on screen just because it's on a big screen and it's a living room but it's not a living room because now it's on screen there's a great uh film theorist named christian metz who wrote a book called the imaginary signifier mm -hmm. and that book kind of allowed me to understand what I was feeling. You know, it's very difficult to convey in words, but whenever I watch a film now, that's what I look for. I look, there's just, sometimes there's just an atmosphere that draws me in, and that's what I'm most interested in, mm -hmm. in cinema. So it's never about action films or guns or cars or... Uh, CGI. Or, or, or Daffy. Oh, yeah, or Daffy characters. You know, I don't really care even that much about dialogue. I always feel like... Uh, I wish the dialogue was not so expository. Okay. You know, I wish that I could just, I would, I just want to figure out the film on my own. You don't have to tell me. Um, if you look at something like uh, Louis Bunuel's Unchien Andalou, The Andalusian Dog, a film that he had made with Salvador Dali, mm -hmm. that film to most people doesn't make a lot of sense, but coming from references and the surrealist background that those guys came from, well, you can go, okay, I understand why they made the film the way they made the film, but I, I can't even imagine a film being made like that today. Or Sergei Eisenstein or Kurosawa films have a, you know, totally different yeah. stamp as well. I took a one course with Dr. Janet Steiger from NYU at Delaware, and she uh, she made me want to be an amateur director. In the, so I can only appreciate what you're saying. I have no idea. You've actually done it. So I appreciate you uh, laying things out and, and, and explaining it to people who uh, maybe don't understand it on that level so thanks thanks for bringing yeah, us up absolutely and, and you put you pointed something out there is a different landscape to certain assurance directors but you know if you watch an Ingmar Bergman film your whole day is going to feel different mm -hmm. you know you're not going back into the world that you left you know it's say what say what some of the early David Lynch stuff mm. you know uh but there are some directors who Blue Velvet you know, Blue Velvet's a fantastic film I love Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive um but the contemporary directors, I really like James Gray, the man who did uh, We Own the Night and uh, and The Yards. I, I like those two films a lot. My, actually, my friend Bill Ackerman and I went to watch James Gray speak at, um, oh God, what's that place called? Metrograph in, in New York mm -hmm. recently. And James Gray is hilarious. He's so incredibly smart and prolific a director, you know. He reminds me a little bit of Soderbergh when he talks. It's like a Soderbergh meets Woody Allen. So just to hear these guys, to hear these guys riff on film and their process, and they're all so bright. Same thing with Steven Soderbergh. You know, I'd be so intimidated to be in a room with him. I'd probably shake the entire time. You, you know, know it's, it's funny. I saw him recently. I rewatched Entourage out of boredom, and uh, he did a cameo, and he was actually pretty funny, I thought, in this character. Oh, Soderbergh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He And his... His, you know, he his he doesn't he made this film called The Underneath, which I don't think he likes at all. Uh, and again, there's an atmosphere to that film. I don't know if it was the town that he used, which I think was Austin, Texas. You know, if I ever went into, I mean, I've been to Austin. I haven't found those of those locations, but he, he shot Sex Lies and Videotape in Baton Rouge, and I think 
God, if I ever went to Baton Rouge, this is all I would think about. Right. Is Step Slides and Videotape because it made such an impression on me. Mm-hmm. Powerful. When something makes that much of an impression on you, I think also I wanted to make that much of an impression on somebody. And I always wanted to be kind of a regionalist film director, which is, you know, shooting in Lewis and Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Not many, nobody makes films there. You know, The Dish and the Spoon was made there by Allison Bagnell. Mm-hmm. Um, parts, of, parts of Blue Ruin were shot there. Um, I think parts of Failure to Launch and, and then Yesertitis Golden Darks are an alms you say. There's not much else that's not Unless it's just a short film, you know, made by locals or something. But yeah, and the only the only other feature stuff has been in Ken or you know Newcastle County, and most of it's fictionalized. I mean, Fight Club was fictionalized in Wilmington, and then mm-hmm. you know, Dead Poets in Knoxontown, which is almost in Kent County, I guess, but not quite. But uh, yeah, but and, and so, actually, so you're unique in your approach to, to to film such a picturesque. You know, there's not many seascapes that are like that that part of Delaware. Oh, not at all. And, and you know, Lewis, I, uh, Lewis, I have, I, you know, a love affair with, and actually Rehoboth too, I've grown to love even more. And they were so amiable to us there. Well, you were in the film. I had a bit part. You were too kind to let me jump around in a, in a you were awesome in it. But, but uh, you know, speaking of that poet society with Peter Weir mm-hmm. was an influence on this film because of uh, picnic and hanging rock. Have you ever seen that? I haven't, but it sounds or- fascinating. <laughs> Or Last Wave, Picnic and Hanging Rock was definitely an influence on Yes, Your Tide and Last Wave. Um, you know, you know, I don't. Uh, when I when I watch a movie, I'm always trying to get that same feeling that I got from you know seeing Phantasm for the first time or mm-hmm. speaking parts. I do like films like uh, the the classic films like Citizen Kane, and mm. I love um, Orson Welles. I love Orson Welles. Touch of Evil was another favorite on that line. film. Yeah, definitely. I saw Touch of Evil. I was having a day. There was a, a period in my life in my twenties or early thirties where I was having panic attacks, mm-hmm. and I was in New York City with again my friend Bill Ackerman, and I was having one, and I had to like find something to do because he was going into work, and I was begging him to take me back to his parents' house, and he wouldn't. He was like, "Sorry," <laughs> he was working for Criterion, so I had to like duck into a bathroom, get my breath. And I went to see Touch of Evil in a retro theater, and then by the time it ended, I felt better. <laughs> That's my story of Touch of Evil. Well, you, once you see Orson Welles' character just struggling to breathe, and I won't ruin the plot for anybody who hasn't seen it, Heston was great in that, and Janet Lee, if I recall, right? Uh, yeah, well, I haven't seen it in so long, I can't remember. And I, I don't feel like I'm... Go ahead. We studied that film, so I'm pretty sure it was Janet Lee, but it could be off. It, it was more than a decade ago. <clears throat> cough, cough. Anyway, so... Uh, uh, yeah, Orson Welles did some great films. Uh, really, really enjoyed that one. And some of the uh, well, there's too many to, to talk, and it's not about my. Uh, I was just chiming. No, in there. no, no. I, I like hearing. I, I also love that the uh, Bell de Jour by Louis Bunuel, also the guy who made Lucien Andalou. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen that with Catherine Deneuve. I I saw part of it, but I need to I need to watch it now that I'm a little older. <laughs> Yeah, I think I was distracted for reasons I won't go into. But yeah, it, I, I remember <laughs> not finishing that film. But no, Bell de Jour. <laughs> no, my, I'd like to go into that. I want to know why. No, that was my panic attack. I'm, I'm kidding for a different reason. But uh, 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 let's not go there. So uh, you know, this is a good, uh, a deep, deep dive into like who's moved you into cinema. Should we mm-hmm. step into present day and talk about your, you know, your current music and film projects? What would you like people to, to focus on or to take a listen to? I'm, I'm sure your friends and fans will already know about this, but maybe some new listeners will be 
getting exposed to the Collingwood or your films. So let's uh, let's talk about some music that you'd like to walk us through. Uh, that you know, maybe your most recent record or your favorites, tracks or whatever. Sure. Uh, so let's see. The most the most current recording that the Collingwood did was. I think 2017, we recorded with John Curley of the Afghan Wigs. We recorded mm -hmm. the song, I Like What You Do, in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I haven't released it on Spotify yet. It's on Bandcamp. Uh, prior to that, uh, on Spotify, you can find the Yes, Your Tide is Cold and Dark Sir soundtrack, mm -hmm. which uh, was essentially me and Rich Dagnars, for the most part, by and large, uh, doing that together because i didn't have a band like when i went away to make yes your titus colon dark star that usurped or just kind of ate up probably you know two years of my life all inclusive so, kind of 24 7 and plus job no time for music yeah there was yeah and and i yeah when, when when i'm in film i just that's what i feel like doing i don't really feel like doing music and then before that uh this record is not on spotify but uh the pitter patter of little everything which had i was on it obviously jim pennington mm -hmm. barouche i think brian Maldane may have played on it also uh bill ackerman played on it i own those uh, records yeah. yeah and then before that was uh sylvester to the buzz me up accompaniment which had josh Hendricks. Mm -hmm. um which had eric boland who i was in freak show with who's no longer with us um, mm -hmm. and Brian Naldane played on that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then before that, uh, why call save? Why call save is not available. I have it someplace. I just haven't put it online yet. I do most of this, mm -hmm. but four of those records you can find on Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. They have like, the easiest. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Sounds like a good excuse to, uh, digitize that one. That's not available and put it out there for laughs. I really should. Yeah. That was a totally, well, Tony and Hallie had played on that for a while. Tony Cyanian and, and Hallie Boyle. I'd like to play with them again at some point because they're amazing musicians. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Jason Ray also played on that first record. He was a drummer that we had early on. Mm -hmm. um, but the, so four of those albums are available on, on Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our videos, of course, I'd like to push because I think they're really great videos. The White Deer video from the Collingwood is all of the, the actresses and that and who are friends of mine and, yeah. and fuck yeah, Hollywood yeah. also fuck yeah, Hollywood. I really like, I watch those videos and I watch any, you know, videos from, from known bands or, or finance people, you know, who are, you know, making gobs and gobs of millions and millions of dollars. And I look at our videos and I go, I really feel like our videos are better than those videos. Yeah, I'm you know, glad. Maybe I'm kidding myself. No, I'm glad you went there because I wanted to draw some attention to that because it seems to be the merging of both of your art forms and they are quite something to behold. They're really well thought out. They're done. They're trendy, beautiful people. The scenery, the way it's filmed, the cutting, the editing, the music is spectacular. You're Thank right. You. It's, it's, uh, it's, people should check it out. And can they see that on YouTube or something if they want to? Yes. On, on YouTube, if you look up the, you have to put the Collingwood white deer music video or the Collingwood fuck yeah Hollywood. The actually, the, the full title of that is fuck yeah Hollywood. Bonjourno Denise Richards. Yes. I remember that last part. I call it affectionately <laughs> Denise Richards. <laughs> I went through a Denise Richards phase. Who didn't? <laughs> uh, but yeah, they're on. They're on. Um, 
YouTube, and I'll tell you, shooting those was fantastic. The cool thing about shooting the music video is, although you're on set for you know ten to fourteen hours each day mm-hmm. on, on you know something that's shot that's actually worthwhile to watch, um, you know, editing it is so much fun. And I had edited both of those in New York. You know, one mm-hmm. with Ben Witten of, of Madhouse uh, on on uh, God, what street is that? <laughs> I can't remember. Not Fifth Avenue. Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, but I would go up. I'd take a little train up. I, I did it that way. The um, Penn Station John. I was, what's that? The Penn Station John from Philly. Of course. From Olmo, yeah. yeah, I spent a lot of money doing that. And mm-hmm. then uh, Alms, Alms, you say, was edited much in the same way. But then with White Deer, I already had a relationship with Colby Bartine because he edited Yesterday's Titus Call of the Dark, sir. The film, yeah. So that was easy. We did one, one day in Landenberg to edit. And then the second day was done in Brooklyn in his mm-hmm. apartment, um, and I trust I trust these people. Bob Stewart, who shot that, um, not all of my films, but most of them. Like he he shot White Deer and he shot uh, Fuck You Hollywood. And the cool thing about that was I had insisted on everything being shot on film for the longest time, right? And it made it very difficult for me to make a feature length film because it's pricey anyway. Yes, um, just film and, stock alone is you know pricey stuff and lab costs and you never know what you're going to get i mean i got lucky with alms you say because that was shot on 16 millimeter by my friend adam broomfield who is an amazing cinematographer he doesn't do it anymore but um so i got lucky there but so bob stewart took me aside and said you know chris you keep arguing with me about shooting digitally but can i just say I would like to see you make more than one film in your life can you please just entertain this and i said okay so we did some camera tests, and then we did uh, the Fuck Yeah Hollywood video, and it was fantastic. I looked mm-hmm. at it, and I said, oh, my God, this looks so good. And, and obviously, the people who are in that video, I, I just, everybody looks so glamorous and so incredible, you know? There's also an otherworldly yet accessibility type of quotient to all the characters. They, they look like very attractive, real people, but there's this, I'm part of something distant and magical element is that part of how you direct it or is that just my impression no it's definitely how i direct it uh-huh. yeah I, I i always i i, I want that kind of galls over reality mm-hmm. is what i would call it because you're these people are not the same people you see walking down the street i mean they're still my friends mm-hmm. i keep in touch with some of them and i think you know that they, they can't be the same person you know, but it is, it's the same person. And what, what is that? I don't know what the separation is. That's something I think I'll be trying to explore or delve into for the rest of my life. And uh-huh. it's kind of what we discussed earlier. Uh-huh. Uh, and a chair is not a chair when it's on screen. It's something different. You know, mm-hmm. your living room chair there is not, you know, in your living room is different when it's photographed. There's something different. So, so this is a fascinating thing that just crossed my mind because, you know, you, you, you're full of ideas and full of, um, vision how how do you translate and approach taking a piece of music into a, a piece of music video because i imagine it's a different you know art form than a full feature-length film obviously mm-hmm. is there a process or a way you think it through or a um a lens with which you process how how it how it's going to eventually look and turn into reality i usually it'll it'll stem from a location and I'll be listening to, maybe I'll listen to the music and I'll think, okay, where do I start? And it might be just one person that I know. And I picture this person walking a specific way or standing in this corner of a room. And I go, okay, that's a starting point. 
And then I go, okay, where could we go from here? And I'll, you know, at that point, for those two videos, I was lucky enough to live on this beautiful property in Landenburg, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I lived there for 13 years alone in a little stone cottage. And so I had access to all of this beauty. And plus, you know, a lot of my friends are female. And I thought, well, I'd like to put these people in the film. These, I, I, I like also like the idea of using uh, non-actors or non-models in, in anything from uh, photo shoots, still photo shoots, to you know, casting in a film because they look like your next door neighbor or they look like your mom, and, and these people should be celebrated, and they're not going to be celebrated because you know, or in the way the, you know Hollywood might think, uh, right. which is you know, kind of stem, gives more meaning to the video that way. Fuck yeah, Hollywood, mm-hmm. or fuck you, Hollywood. Um, There's more to life than it, TMZ photos, right? Absolutely. This is these are people who should be famous who are not famous and who don't give a fuck about being famous. You know, they have other things to do in their life. You know, but I want to celebrate them because they're mm. they're beautiful people. You know, I look at them male and female. You know, and I think this I I want this person to to get some notoriety and and mm. this is what I'm going to do to make sure that happens. Yeah, indeed. And I think there, you know, you mentioned kind of a, um, I'm going to paraphrase it, but I, I, there is like a, a soft focus Hollywood, uh, um, like almost in the fifties, the glamour where you see people look in a glamorous way and it's, it's not shot the same way, but then there's this real veneer, uh, beneath the veneer, there's this reality to the, the, the characters I think that comes through. Is that, I don't know, maybe I'm all wet in that one. No, 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 no. I, I, was, I think I was talking a little bit more about the metaphorical galls in front of these people. Just like, again, it's it's a club that you're not really privy to because it's not the same person anymore. It's a, okay. it's an image on screen. It's it's a collection of of grain in film and 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 I don't know what you would call it in in video, this pixelation or whatever. It's mm-hmm. it's something other than what it should be, you know. It sounds like total bullshit, <laughs> but I'm not kidding. Like that's how I think about this stuff, and that's why I'm fascinated with the visual medium. Well, I think I think it's uh, it's it's interesting to see you know what you think, and, and it, although some of it is abstract, maybe for the average person who maybe isn't as um, you know, I'm a, I'm a film novice uh, to a, to an intermediate, but I think you, you yeah, it's, it's it gives me an idea of how things are are thought of and made in your head, and what what's important to you in in your constructions well, and your art. Well, I think I think I had plans to shoot it, and it was going to be a two-day shoot, uh, which is which is pretty easy. I mean, it's ridiculously easy compared to shooting a film. But right. uh, and my friend, friend Bob was coming down from New York, and I remember just thinking, all right, I have to think of where I'm going to place people, and this is kind of what how I want this to be done. I want it to be done almost like a. Uh, a photo shoot or a celebration of what these people look like, and mm-hmm. but I'd like some darkness involved. And you know, I don't, I don't want to see a video where the band's playing on stage. That's not what I'm interested in. I want to see the band, you know, living in, in in domesticity like the rest of us, and they're magical because they're in this music video, and that's what makes it magical is that mm-hmm. we're celebrating a bush, you know, instead instead of just walking past a bush, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and. When I'm, when I'm, you know, I'm thinking because we're we're probably going to make a few few videos for the new songs, and I'm already thinking of ideas. You know, what what visually will add some humor to this, or what visually will make this move along, or what am I feeling in these lyrics? That mm-hmm. usually it's something abstract. You know, very cool. Well, you know, I, I appreciate you like taking a look behind the scenes and you know going down the rabbit hole with me there to kind of explore that and hopefully. Uh, people who um, 
are listening, we'll, we'll, we'll in fact go on YouTube and check a couple of these out and see exactly what we were talking about. Cause I, as the cliche goes, a, a movie's worth probably a million words cause a picture is worth a thousand. But, oh, yeah. uh, but you know, so check these out. Do you, do you also want to draw some attention to some songs? Like maybe we could play a snippet of some songs you want to highlight as some of your favorites or the ones that yeah. uh, mean the most to you in the Collingwood. Yeah. The, the ones that mean the most to me, uh, gosh, let me think. Um, I really like the song birthday cut mm-hmm. from the Peter powder of little everything album. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Life and Ricochet from uh, the Yes Your Tide is Cold and Dark Sir soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, God, what else? The one that we did with John Curley is great, too. I like what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, these guys <laughs> these guys look like they have razor blades off of the uh, Yes Your Tide is Cold and Dark Sir soundtrack. Uh-huh. Also, is one that I like. Uh, I like all of them. You know, um, but the stuff off of uh, Sylvester to the Buzz Me Up accompaniment, I was definitely coming from a different place at that point in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, writing 12 to 13 minute songs, shit that I would never practice now because <laughs> it just takes so long to go through. But I love and then and, and, and jump through windows and Paul, Paul Stanley, you know, is Paul obviously Stanley a song cool. about it's a song about my father, you know, and, and, and it was written, be, you know, before his death. Mm-hmm. Um, so now when I, I get very weepy thinking about it, um, so those are, those are favorites as well. Well, your dad was a cool guy. And for the average listener who, oh, may, yeah, not, yeah. who may not know he's passed and no longer with us as well. And he's, he's quite missed. He was a good guy. Yeah. It's a very good guy. And my mother also had a, an extreme influence on my life. You know, my mother was incredibly positive in raising kids, right. you know, as a single mother and, um, really always pushed me to do exactly what I wanted to do. She told me pretty much to really never compromise. And sometimes that gets me into trouble. <laughs> what would a gift a parent can give a child though? In, in the- <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So do you want to, do you want to dive? Uh, let's play one of the tracks for the listener. Which one should we set up a verse and a chorus and have a listen through here? And then, uh, yeah, how about, uh, how about, uh, life and ricochet? Okay, cool. We'll, we'll cut to this track and, uh, catch you on the other side.
so we're on the other side of that track. Um, are there other tracks you'd like to uh, expose the audience to, just in case they haven't heard them already? Uh, let's see. I would say off of that record, I really like these guys look like they had razor blades. So I got to ask before we play that song, where did that, where did that title and the content come from? That title came from uh, the Yes, Your Tide is Cold and Dark, Sir, the film, because that song is playing in the scene where my character turns around and looks at the two men in, in the black suits and says, these guys look like they had razor blades. Yes. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, yes, that's it. Uh, and that song in the film, at that point, I thought I was going to have access to the song by Firefall, just rem remember I love you, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite songs, mm -hmm. or strange or strange ways by them, mm -hmm. um, and I didn't. I talked to a member of Fire Firefall, and they were fine with it, but I had there was such a circuitous route to my using their music that I, it was. Uh, I wanted a Joan Baez song in the film too, and too. same thing with Joan Baez. Mm -hmm. Her manager was into it, and then I heard from somebody else her manager wasn't into it. And I thought, well, oh my God, like I don't, I can't, don't have time for this, and and I can only imagine the amount of money. And it, there are so many rules governing what you can use in film for music. Oh, licensing and lawyers and rules and. Uh. Well, yeah, and that's why you have a music supervisor, which I wasn't going to have on Tide. I, I, would, I was going to have it for uh, my next film, Last Time I Saw You Blessed, but mm -hmm. not for Tide. And it just got to the point where I just got tired of messing around with it. There was also a Country Joe and the Fish song that I love called Donovan's Reef that I wanted to use. But, oh. um, so I started to write songs that resembled the songs that I wanted in the film. And, and, and if you listen to uh, these guys look, look like they have laser blades, mm -hmm. it sounds an awful lot like... It's harkening back to Strange Way by or Strange Ways by um, Firefall. So a really clever way to use your talent to uh, give yourself the soundtrack, which is one of the most important material elements of film, the mise en scène, as it was. Yeah. Uh huh. So uh, as it were, I should say. Yeah, it, oh, definitely. And and at first, that was another thing. I got to use some great local artists, also, which they don't. They're not on this soundtrack at all because I wanted this to be an album by the Collingwood, mm -hmm. you know, even though there was really no one in the band at that point, except for me and rich because mm -hmm. rich was playing drums on the track. But, uh, you know, I got to use, um, some of my favorite musicians in the area throughout the film. So if you look at the film, mm -hmm. you'll see songs by certain people. Um, and I would highly recommend it because just some people, you know, they don't do much with music anymore. And I'm glad that they're in my, in my movie. Um, the lovely and talented this. Gina, Rich's sister. Yeah, Gina Degnars, of course. Stitchy Vale and many so so many great bands over the years. So, yeah, speaking of the fuck yeah Hollywood video and the White Deer video, somehow she's she's always my right hand person in those things. Mm -hmm. And of, and of course my lovely wife Chrissy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's play a little bit of that uh, that cut, and uh, on the other side, we'll pick it up uh, and talk a little bit more.
So Chris, so let's dig in. Are there any other cuts from your catalog you'd like to interest our listening audience into getting to know better? Sure. I, I love uh, I love birthday cut. Um, and, and I just want to point this out. So like I said before, mm-hmm. I will normally write a riff and present it to the band. But in some cases, that's not always so. Sometimes someone will come up with something. And, and if we picked apart every song, I can probably say, this was his, this was his, this is mine. This is, And this one, <laughs> the guitar riff at the beginning, the creepy little, is definitely Pennington. Mm-hmm. You know, definitely his idea. And I think I riffed off of his idea. And then the bass line, I'm going to clarify, was written by Bill Ackerman. Uh-huh. So he, he gets his, his just, uh, is it just desserts? Like I said, I feel like I'm at a, at a loss for words. No, you, um, you want to give the guy credit for coming up with a great riff. I appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, that beat behind, God, I can't remember if that was Jamie or Brian playing on that. I think it was, it was Jamie. Mm-hmm. Jamie played on that. I think Brian played on part of it. I can't remember. Brian Aldane. I'm sure Jamie will let you know if you've... Uh... Yeah, I'll get punched in the face. So just say <laughs> it was Jamie. It was definitely Jamie. Okay. Well, Jamie was in and out, too, because Jamie's got a great job and sometimes needs to take a break. No, yeah. I understand. Plus, he could... I think also that he's... Jamie is so fascinated by me and how great I look and how smart I am that sometimes <laughs> he just can't take it. <laughs> Same with Pennington and anyone else who plays with me. They just, they're in such great awe after they punch me in the face. You know, they're, they feel so sorry for me. No. Um, oh, that's yeah, hilarious. I'm lucky to, everybody I've played with, I've liked. Like, I feel so lucky to ever have the people that I play with just throughout my life, you know, with Freak Show and with Purgatory and The Absurd. And mm-hmm. I can't tell you, like, everybody's been a friend in one way or another. And I still love everybody. So. But but Jim and Jamie and Red are all you know quite formidable musicians in their own right. I mean they have oh my god yeah many oh, multiple definitely. projects on their own and they they really bring a lot of uh, weight and purpose to the to the whole Collingswood experience. Damn right, yeah. Hearing Jamie play, I mean Jamie is a loud player, and I can just shake my ass to his beat, mm-hmm. and he's so solid and he's so good. Taste Jim too. is so. Yes, very much so. And so is Jim. Mm-hmm. And so is Greg. Like, Greg gets it from a metal perspective because we're both, you know, I was, I was, a, you don't listen to heavy metal so much anymore, but Greg comes from that background. Right. And Jim, Jim has, you know, has more of a staccato feel that I'm used to, to his playing, but his passion for music and his friendship and Jamie's friendship and mm-hmm. Greg's friendship mm-hmm. and it, like, that means something because I am a fucking pain in the ass, you know, I'm not, not only as a musician, but just as a friend, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, needy at times and uh, I'm very judgmental. Those guys will tell you, you don't need to hear this from me. Um, so to be around me sometimes I think is challenging and they make it known. Well, I've always had a good time in your presence, Chris. So uh, you know who to call next to hang out with. Uh, we'll, we'll, with always, we'll always have two stones. Yeah, exactly. When it opens in the, 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 the murky future. But we've hung out a number of places over the years. And I think the last time we all played in the same bill was at Argilla's, which has been an cr- incredible addition to the local music scene. Credit to Pete and the team there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no doubt. It was oddity. I came to Wasn't see it? you. I came to see you guys at Argillas. That's right. I played. The oh week yeah, before. that's that's yeah, what happened. Pete. Yeah, that's what it is. He just done a great job with the, us and you know, there and with the shit bands in general. And mm-hmm. he pays well and he mm-hmm. cares. I mean, he pays fairly. 
Yeah. You know, in a way that, you know, someplace like the wedge was the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and back to Argilla's, uh, Pete was live streaming some bands all week. Uh, their their restaurant business is going through, you know, obviously hectic times as we all weather this self-isolation type of phase. So uh, if you are a fan of uh, local music and want some good pizza or craft brew, I know they're still giving out uh, food uh, curbside and I think delivery maybe too. But just, you know, try to give a little support over to people who support original music if I can make a plea to the listening audience. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Pete is extraordinary. Yeah. So you guys have played a lot of shows probably uh, in Delaware and outside of Delaware. Any any notable places or gigs that you'd like the listeners to know about that kind of uh, have interesting stories? Or Sure. Yeah, yeah. We did a small, a very small tour before. Uh, it was when Bill Ackerman was in the band and Jim Pennington, obviously. And then... A, a, a drummer at that point named Mike Riley, and Mike Riley came on the road with us because Brian Naldane couldn't. Mm -hmm. And we, are, <laughs> we, we, Jim and I were barely speaking to one another because I think I got on his last nerve, and we would argue about important things like driving, driving the van. <laughs> uh, but we played some great shows. We played in Ohio with a band called Angels, found at the landing site, and we played something like that. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, and we played. God, where's the other? Was Pete? We played at Brillo Box in Pittsburgh. Have you ever been there? No, no, I've never been to that that venue. That was a great show. We were first on the bill, and I have to say that was probably one of my favorite shows ever. We just really gelled. We were finally getting along, mm -hmm. and uh, I really, oh, I know where we played. We played it in, in North Carolina also because Bill had lived there for a while. We played in Wilmington, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, but that show at the Brillo, I just felt a great connection mm -hmm. with everyone that night. And also the Allentown Jazz Fest was a place that we played maybe a year and a half ago because Brian Tuck, a friend of ours, had set this up. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, Jamie, it was the, the lineup that exists now. And everybody was just so on. I think we played two sets and it was just so much fun playing with these guys and mm -hmm. and and i do like when, when we're on and we're and we're all getting along um you know if i'm not running my mouth too much um we just there's a magic there and i just i feel like crying mm -hmm. thinking about it you know i can't go home at night and i'm so excited because there are times i'm sure you witnessed this you have a show scheduled and really all you want to do that night is sit at home with well you know in my case with my wife and watch a film and have a fire and have some drinks and I don't want to leave my house. Mm -hmm. And then I get to the venue and I'm starting to talk to people, having a drink or two. And then I get on stage and I get to play with my friends. And I think this is the greatest fucking feeling ever. What was I thinking? And I get home and Christy goes, see, I told you, I told you before you left the house tonight, I told you you were going to be in love with it again. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's another one. Mm -hmm. Uh, are you talking about just with the Collingwood or with other bands? No, it could be anywhere. You know, I think what I what I like to do, and this is a multi, you know, like a tri-state-ish kind of a podcast at this point, but I okay. have aspirations sure, sure. to make it larger. And so right now we have a local listening audience. And what I'd like to draw attention to the uh, listening audience is that, you know, we have guys that play in New York, California and tour and, oh, yeah. do, and do things like, you know, the most famous band in the world started out as a local band. So I like to give people their credit and do and, uh, share yeah. interesting stories and cool venues that are in the state and out of the state. 
Well, uh, Arlene Grocery, we were, uh, the Collingwood was opening for a burlesque show there for a little while. <laughs> this was only about, do you remember this? No, I'm just laughing because this is the second podcast on the road. Somebody's mentioned Arlene's. Uh, I just interviewed Haha ha Charade and they, they, they've just done a showcase up there. So it's interesting that this, this, that I, I know what a seminal venue this is. Yeah. So we played there. There was a, a burlesque show called Newtlesque. And we ended up, it was by accident that we ended up being the opening band for this show for a while. And the first show that we played there with them was packed, you know, thanks to Jamie Baruch, who is from Secaucus, New Jersey. So he has a lot of friends and people who, who like him a lot. And so we, we had a packed house the first night and so did New Lesk. And it was just such an extraordinary experience. Mm -hmm. I can't, I, again, it was one of those nights where I just felt like everything locked in and you're in New York City and it's so much fun and then you have to do the crappy ride home. But Right. <laughs> but, but you know, you, New York City's a tough town to crack and it's a tough, sure. tough circuit to crack. So if you went over well there, friends or not, I mean, that's quite an accomplishment to, uh, to do that. Not every band gets that experience. No, no, not at all. And Argila, or is it Argila or Argila? I always mispronounce it. Uh, tomato, good. tomato, I, uh, ha ha charade, ha ha charade. I, 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 I'm, I'm illiterate, Chris. I don't know. The two, the two shows that we played there were fantastic as well. They were great. And I love playing 84 and I love playing Oddity. Gosh, mm. you know, God, I can't tell you the number of times we played those venues. Yep. Every, everybody likes to give a shout out to uh, Matt and to Pat. And Pat, oh my God, these guys have done because what would we do without you know because mm. with without those three i mean logan house i do i like i love their stage yep. and i loved when what was the guy's name digital dave the guy who did sound yeah mud rock yeah, well, so so a lot of people had problems with him because he had a way of doing sound and he wanted you to follow the rules yeah and i i always followed his rules if you mm -hmm. if you if you don't make friends with the sound man right away you're fucked yeah you know, you better get in there and kiss their ass and let them know that they know more than you. And I always do that because they do. They know more than I know about that room. So I just shut my fucking mouth yeah. and I do what they tell me to do. And I thought he did a great job. So when he was the sound guy there, I loved, I loved playing there. I really did. Well, it's funny because uh, my, my first interaction with Dave is that I had the same experience. I always try to get him a drink or, you know, grease him a little tip or something before the show. And he was like very professional and, and he, he was looking at me, kind of sizing me up. And I said, well, I'm here to be the easiest guitar player you ever deal with. I'm going to turn down as low as you want me to. And all of a sudden we were friends, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, no. They love you for that. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you, then you just sneak the guitar up later, and they know you're going to do it. But it's it's a dance. It is a dance, and it and, and it should be a tango if you uh, if you play your cards right. On, on the downside, uh, I hate lifting my AC30 up those rickety back steps. They uh, really need some other way to get stuff upstairs. But you know, maybe they'll fix that in my next lifetime. I don't know. The Brillo Box in Pittsburgh has a, a situation that's uh -huh. like two or three flights of very steep stairs. Same with Bourbon and Branch in Philly. Right. Um, which is another really cool room. I do like playing there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when I was in Freak Show, when I was playing with Tom Harvey and Mike Gargiulo and Eric Bolin, mm -hmm. we would rent out high schools. Right. Uh, and, and Joan Gargiulo would do all of the business end of things. And we would have like five to 700 people there. And that's not an exaggeration. No. And we would, we would set up the night before because we had a huge production. Mm -hmm. And then we had a sound company that would come in and some of these guys are still around Billy Pierce, you know, Billy Pierce, the blues musician. Mm -hmm. 
from, uh, he's he you know has his own band now. He always has, but he was one of the sound people. And we would sound check during the afternoon. So your sound check would begin at one in the afternoon. It would go to like four or five, like a pro tour. You know? I would love that. And mm. and every everything felt you felt so secure at that point because it was bulletproof. It was. And then at the wedge, we tried to. We did that also. We would bring our system in. Remember the wedge in Landenburg? Sure. I, I saw you guys there a few times. Which is now right around the corner from my house, now non-existent. Mm-hmm. But we we would bring our equipment there in the afternoon. Rich Dagnars would do the sound. Yep. And we'd do a sound check in the afternoon so we wouldn't have to do it at night in front of everyone. We just kind of wanted to get there, put strap our gear on, and then yeah. play. I, I miss that so much. Hyper segue. Let's talk about your film projects. Which ones? Uh, l- let's talk about y- your your most current passion that's in the works. Okay, so the most current project is a film called "The Last Time I Saw You Blessed," which I had written in 2015, uh, and had a, sub- a substantial amount of financing behind it. Right. Um, I'd gone to the American film market. I've been there three times now. The American film market in Santa Monica mm-hmm. uh, because. I- had great financiers, uh, namely Alan Burkhart and my friend Greg Tigeni, who really helped me out. Uh, this, this project kind of went, um, lost its financing because Greg and I had, uh, I wouldn't say a falling out. It was a kind of a friendly handshake. I, I think I didn't want to compromise certain aspects of mm-hmm. the script. And thus and therefore, I walked away from a lot of money. Right. I don't know how else to say it. And I, people told me I was crazy. And I said, but, but I have to say, like, if I'm not making the film that I want to make the, uh, to a T, there's no sense in my doing it. Mm-hmm. If I was directing somebody else's project, if I was a director for hire, mm-hmm. like some of my friends, my indie uh, film friends will direct for hire. And I, that's great. You know, I, I don't know that I could ever do that unless there was a substantial amount of money there because once your name's on it, your name's on it. It's hard to get it off. Uh, and and I do. I'm a little bit of a control freak in that arena, especially with film. Uh, well, it does so, have your name on it. Let's be honest. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and once you you know, you're sitting down writing a script for six to eight months, which is about how long it takes is if it's something substantial. And to make a film costs a lot of money, so you don't do need financiers. You know, it's really when I hear about people making films for like ten thousand dollars, you know, and they're like, oh yeah, I made a feature. It was this much money. And, and you, you look at it and you know it's a $10,000 film. Yeah, I mean, I've you seen know? the Blair Witch I, Project that worked once, right? Yeah, and, and, and you, you kind of, that's, your name's on it. For the rest of your life, that's what you did, you know. Uh, but there are people who get away with it, and it's it's rare. But one person I'd like to bring up is Shane Carruth, mm-hmm. the film Upstream Color. Supposedly, I heard, and this is just, just a rumor, that... It was a $50,000 project, which is like unheard of for yeah. a feature film. Ridiculously um, cheap for those who aren't initiated in the film business. Yeah. And, and that, God, that film really spoke to Have you ever seen that movie? No, I haven't. Watching the trailer alone, you're going to be totally captivated. But so needless to say, you need business people behind you who are willing to give you money. And because there's a lot to do with the film, you know, there's no... There, there are no filmmaking facilities in Delaware. Mm-hmm. You have to go outside of Delaware to get all of your, your lighting packages and your camera packages and usually your crew mm-hmm. um, and cast for the most part. Mm-hmm. So it costs a lot of money and it's a lot of long distance 
driving or flying to meet with people. And uh, a lot of financiers like to meet with people face to face before they're going to put their money sure. uh, in this or that um, aspect of the film. Um, so you need that. So uh, last time I saw you blessed is obviously about a female runner who, uh, who, you know, kind of mourning the, the, the drug related death of her boyfriend retreats to a family cottage and in so many words has a life some life changing uh dilemmas mm -hmm. while she's there um and I, I don't want to go into the details of it sure it's a it, teaser it's not the plot right yeah no it's it's a bit of magical realism and uh but very much rooted in reality and domesticity because that's my favorite right you know i don't i don't need monsters or anything in my movie i i like i almost like a, a threat that never comes to fruition or that is unknown mm -hmm. uh my friend again my friend bill ackerman and i always talk about he, he always had this film idea and he wanted to name the film the autumn ghostliness and you really don't know what it is and there's no one nothing ever happens the the the, the characters are scared of something and they have no idea what they're scared of you know bit of magical realism and uh but very much rooted in reality and domesticity because that's my favorite right you know i don't i don't need monsters or anything in my movie i i like i almost like a, a threat that never comes to fruition or that is unknown mm -hmm. uh my friend again my friend bill ackerman and i always talk about he, he always had this film idea and he wanted to name the film the autumn ghostliness and you really don't know what it is and there's no one nothing ever happens the the the, the characters are scared of something and they have no idea what they're scared of you know yeah, but but I have to say though I think that's a very human condition, and that's why oh, something yeah. like the August Ghost, if I'm not paraphrasing that that title, called ghostliness. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that would uh, I think a lot of people it speaks to them if you can relate to the that anxiety or or worry or tension or regret that is is very ubiquitous in human experience. Yeah. Oh, very much so. And and we don't. I, I like the fact that it's an intangible and it's kind of what I was talking about with the film mm. writing films. Like when I write films, this is always on, on, on my mind, you know, but especially with the extra ties going in the dark, sir, there is that threat. What, what's going on with the father? Where is the mm -hmm. father? Is the father around? Did the father even exist? Like what is, why is he in this town? Why is Cliff in this town? You know, mm -hmm. but, and, and I always take liberties with scripts. Also, this is what turns a lot of financiers off is you are never, ever, ever supposed to introduce characters in the third act. Mm. One of my favorite things to do is to introduce characters in the third act because you're not supposed to do it because there are screenwriting rules. There's, there's a discipline, you know, that you're supposed to adhere to. And I don't mm -hmm. like to do that. And, very, also very punk of you <laughs> yeah rules were made exactly. to be broken yeah yeah and and also uh the other thing is in in most cinema and i would say probably about 80 percent of cinema the third act is always disappointing to me mm -hmm. and I, I but i love films that go i was describing this to someone the other day when you get to the third act of a film, I like when you kind of start to ride the crest of the wave or the wave is swelling mm -hmm. and then the, then that, then the film ends and everyone goes, I don't understand. What do you mean? You know, I, I, I think that's what I'm really interested in. That's, that's what I want to see. I want to see the film where some of my favorite film endings are the John sales film limbo. Have mm -hmm. you ever seen that film with Chris Christopherson? And I haven't, uh, that's a great, 
a great ending. And um, the station agent with Pete, uh, what's his name? Peter Dinklage. Oh, yeah. I feel like I'm out of it. I, I no longer go to see films in, in, in theaters, or I feel like I don't, unless they're retro films, well, and I'm not trying to be pretentious. But. No one goes to see films in theaters right now, so you're right in the club. Don't worry. Yeah, and they're loud. There's people in the theater yeah. with you. I like it to be a very private experience. Same. And, and the, the trailers are horrible, and the, the sound of trailers, are it's so loud, yeah. and the music is loud, and it's disturbing. It's compressed as it, all shit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, unless you go to like Metrograph in New York City or Lincoln Center where they're having a film retrospective, you right. know, and then you go, oh man. Different animal. You know, definitely. Um, I did see the Mr. Rogers film with Tom Hanks. I liked that. That was excellent, I thought. Yeah, I love Tom Hanks, period. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, God, I saw 20th Century Women in a theater mm -hmm. with my wife, which was from a couple of years ago. I thought that was fantastic. I don't think there was any mention mm -hmm. of that at the Oscars. I've only watched the Oscars, I think, one time in my life. Have you watched, sat down and done this? No, I, I most recently, the film I saw that I love the most is one I was late to the party on called The Green Book. And I thought that was just fantastically done didn't see it but i would yeah it's vito morgensen and it's a uh, based on a real story and it, it touches across a number of important uh, human experiences and um, social topics that we're dealing with today but it was just a good character study and really well shot and you know pretty cool yeah well, i'd like to see it I, I i'll tell you i liked uh this would never play in american theaters or i think it did for a, for a short period of time is i love the film gaspar no uh well it's a film by gaspar noe called love mm -hmm. love is probably the best film i've seen in the past 10 20 years well for me mm -hmm. i shouldn't say best but definitely my top five made, made a I super impression that. on you it's in your pantheon of films oh definitely yeah um but you know uh Chris, it's really cool to talk about a lot of movies that have influenced you, and it, it was cool to hear some of the stories about Yes, You're Tide. Uh, people can still check out Yes, You're Tide, if I'm not mistaken, on Amazon Prime and a few other places. Is that correct? Yeah, Yes, You're Tide is cold and dark, sir, is on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's the only place I have it right now. Um, I'll probably put it up in, on some other mediums, but that's where... I mean, it just seems so convenient. Right. It's the easiest place for most people to get to these days. Yeah, and it's you know it's something I'm still very proud of. You know, we we did that film with about a cast or a crew of maybe 17 people, which is a tiny crew, right? Over the course of 28 days, and it was 150 thousand dollars, which costs the which is like a so low budget, you know. And it was one of the only feature films shot in Delaware. So mm -hmm. if you, if you're from this state and you like Lewis and Rehoboth especially should definitely check it out yeah i i enjoyed watching it and uh i enjoyed humbly being on set uh for a few scenes as an extra but to see how the process worked and to watch you and the guys work on the beach and then ultimately we moved down to the lewis um public parkland there and it, it, yeah we read cape cape henlon but yeah. we had to get special permits for that i i have to say everybody was amiable in that in that sit town you know the police department let us use everything from their outfits to their cars to their guns i mean they really they were just did everything we wanted how cool i mean that's just awesome oh yeah definitely and the restaurants like the buttery mm -hmm. and uh and the green turtle and um some of the restaurants and bars who were first writing they immediately think 
you're making like a $5,000 film when you call them. They're like, yeah, I guess you could use it. We're going to keep our restaurant open when you're shooting. And you're like, no, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. We have we, to come in. You're going to have to close down for 15 hours. You know, we have budget and we're going to make you guys look good. Yeah. And you have to, you have to leave. And some, some, some of the people got understood it immediately. And they were like, absolutely. This is good. Like green turtle was great. Mm-hmm. Green turtle charged us almost nothing to shoot there for two nights. And they closed down. They closed down at six at night. We shot from six at night until six in the morning, you know, both nights that we shot there. Very cool. That that's cool. And that's what, that's what you need. But, um, Cape Open state park, you definitely have to, you're, you, you, you need a, uh, second assistant director to, to, to wrangle all the paperwork for, for a location like that. And I mean, it wasn't an extraordinary expense. It might've been like a thousand dollars. But still for a public domain, you know, state park, uh, I thought people got access to state stuff in the state they live in. But anyway, that's another story for another day. Yeah. But I remember being there with you at like three in the morning or four in the morning. Do you remember that shit? Yeah. A bunch of people uh, hung out after the shoot, which was pretty cool. And the the shooting went pretty late to begin with, but it was, it was a good, good experience. And uh, if you've never seen a film made, you'll have a, a much deeper appreciation for what it takes to, to, to make 30 seconds of film happen on a, on a movie. You probably need three hours of stuff for amateurs, but 30 minutes for a guy like you, but still it takes a lot of work. Yeah. And you're absolutely ensconced in that world for, you know, 30 days of your life. You know, you're away from home. Mm-hmm. You can't come home to visit. It's nuts. So, Chris, um, I, I want to switch gears here a little bit now that we talked about sure. the films. Uh, you know, if you could take your career either in film or music to the next level and could meet or have a dinner or a picnic with anybody you could conjure up who's alive or dead, who would you like to assemble in, in that meeting to... To, to pick their brain as an inspiration to your next move. I would love to talk to Steven Soderbergh, probably. Mm-hmm. I'm that's, not surprised based on your sex lies and videotape discussion. Earlier, I but. love sex lies and videotape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I'd love to talk to Gaspar Noe, the man who made, uh, love, mm-hmm. but, uh, I, you know, I think that he, he'd be, I, I'd be very, I, I'd feel that he might be a little out there. I think he's got he's he's kind of in his own rhythm and uh, he wants to be left alone. That's that's the feeling I get from him. But I could be totally wrong. I don't know anything about this guy or Charles Charles Guillebert, who's kind of the head honcho of a lot of those French films mm-hmm. uh, that I like. You know, by Me Handsome Love or by um, Gaspar Noé. Mm-hmm. Uh, so cinema, it would probably be Steven Soderbergh. How about musically? Is there anybody you, I, I've actually know you've met a lot of your, uh, inspirations already. Uh, you know, I have, and as that's why it's hard, you know, I've met, I, I love Greg Dooley of the Afghan wigs. Right. And, um, but, but I am interested in just, you know what I would, I would say about that is how he has somehow maintained for as long as he has. And still, you know, he has owns a couple of bars, you know, the R bar in, in New Orleans and, and shortstop in Los Angeles. And, you know, he maintains those businesses and sometimes works at them and bartends and such mm-hmm. and still is able to write music and record music, like how he handles his lifestyle and his money and his, because I feel like I'm an amateur in that regard. You know, I'm lucky enough now that, you know, I have a great wife, Chrissy Tackett, mm-hmm. and I have this great, house with her and we're able to do this you know I'm, i just turned 50 years old this is the first house i've ever owned mm-hmm. you know she had a house before this and and i feel like honestly i feel so lucky to have mm-hmm. what i have mm-hmm. um in this house right now and now how would you do that and still be able to 
release albums and tour the world. How do you get to that point? And and I, I don't know that there's anyone who could help me there. I'm not I'm not sure. And right. I don't know that the, the desire to do that is um, there for me so much anymore. However, if a label like Sub Pop came along and said, hey, we'd really like to take the Collingwood on, mm-hmm. um, I, that would be something I'd be interested in. Sure. I, I'm not sure how I would talk, who I would talk to to get there, but there are some other musicians I like. I like a guy named Mark Nelson, who Mark Nelson is responsible for the band La Bradford. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know who that is. No, they're and, a little bit uh, south of my radar. I'll have to check it out. Pan American and La Bradford. He still does Pan American. And Mark Nelson was on a label called uh, Cranky uh, and released. He had a band called La Bradford, which is an instrumental outfit. Mm-hmm. And he's uh, just a very interesting fellow. And the stuff, honestly, if La Bradford didn't exist, I'm not sure that Collingwood would exist. Because that's kind of where I got a lot of the kind of instrument. The Collingwood was predominantly instrumental when we first began. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until later that I got into kind of like soul rock and disco rock and that stuff really kind of filtered its way into the music. Um, Interesting evolution. And I've, I've enjoyed both phases, but I have to say I do like, yeah, I do like both phases, but I never would have known that's the genesis of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like listening to soul and uh, disco and um Motown really kind of filtered its way in also. I, I should mention another musician. I would love to talk to Paul Stanley. From Kiss, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and I know that sounds, it probably sounds very cliche, and the reason being is you know, Kiss for me is from probably 1979 backwards. That's what I could still listen to, I think. It doesn't mean that their new music is bad, it's just, it's a nostalgia thing for me now. I get it. Like a lot of hard rock music. But Paul Stanley always seemed to be very positive. He seems healthy. He doesn't. He's not strung out on anything, and I I gravitate toward people like that. I love people who make healthy choices. That's what I want to be around. And he seems you know, to be a guy who he seems to have had a stable relationship and balances yeah. tour, touring around with uh, the the nicer parts of life that you were giving credit and accolade to earlier. You know. Yeah, like what's wrong with the sunny day? You yeah. know, I mean, I, I definitely went through a very uh, dark phase. You know, goth rock was filtered into a lot of what we do. Obviously, Sisters of Mercy, Bauhaus, sure. Joy Division, Fields of the Nephilim, Red Lory, Yellow Lory. Um, <laughs> but that watching him succeed in the way that he has su- succeeded mm-hmm. and that's inspiring. I'm watching with his kids and his wife and, you know, he's happy to be home cooking. That's that means a lot more to me than, than what, you know, some underground indie rock person is interested in. You know, just, I like to see people living and, and doing well. The joy so, of yeah, life. The joy yes. of life. Schwad of much, much like you. Doing my best, man. But, you know, I, I think that's where there, there's a conscious decision I heard you talk about, which is, hey, it'd be nice to go get a sub pop label. But then you've got the ultimate decision to make, which is, you know, to, to make that work in this environment, you have to tour and the to tour you you basically give up everything else. And I've watched I watch a lot of rock documentaries because I'm still a, a freak about it. And me, too. Yeah. Yeah. One, one good one. I'm, I'm into this alt dance band called Foles. I mentioned earlier, and they, there's a documentary uh-huh. called Rip Up the Road. And I think they're, they're very clever guys, first of all. But Yanis Philippakis, this Greek descendant who's English, uh, waxes very intellectually about, well, does it make sense to even be an artist in these days if you want to make commerce out of it? I mean, where's the relevance? Because everybody's fighting music's like treated like a 
disposable tissue, you know, people, you're fighting with the, the cell phone and all these other games and things like that. And it's not revered like it was in, in many circles like it was. Yeah. That which makes sense. But, but so what was his, his, his conclusion was, well, I want to take big risks and make music cause I love it. And as long as it makes economic sense, we'll do it. But I can picture myself. I love gardening. I love spending time. I've gotten into making soaps and, uh, you know, he has interests and he's been with his partner for over eight years, despite touring the world. So I, I think there's a, another model that's evolving out of the, the dinosaur that was the sex, drugs and rock and roll, you know, or the indie rocker despair guy, which there's nothing wrong with enjoying your life. There's just, nothing wrong with that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's kind of a long way. I took a long way to get there, but that was the, the gist I got out of it. Yeah. And, and I watched just recently, uh, speak, speaking to that, um, um, my wife and I just watched the Rolling Thunder review, the Scorsese film on Dylan the other night. Have you seen that documentary? No, I'd like to see that. And what, and there's all kinds of great cameos and such. Joni Mitchell, who I love, you know, mm. is, is in is in the film, and you just watch these guys on the road. You know, Bob Dylan drives the van on that tour. <laughs> you know, he's uber famous, and, and I, I love again. I love seeing people live and do well. Uh, but going further than that, I wanted to come back to the David Crosby documentary. Have you seen that thing? I did not. Yet. remember my name that is terrific but one of the things that he says at the at, at the outset of the, the film is i tour because i need to make money still mm -hmm. like i need money and i think wow geez suppose you had to tour you know in your 70s you know right. suppose you didn't want to anymore and then you had to go out and do that you know and and i i don't think i'd want to be in that position that's why you know even talking to someone like you uh you know who's you've got a great job you do well you have your own house that stuff is way more important to me than being a broke musician or a broke filmmaker. Like I, I always want to have a job and most mm -hmm. people, although uh, you know, I noticed that a lot of people, I'm sure you've witnessed this. People try to hide this all the time. Well, I just do music for a living or I just do film for a living. And then you find out, you know, their wealthy parents are, are carrying them or their husbands or their wives or their boyfriends or girlfriends are carrying them while they do this mm -hmm. to me. I like the people who are working, you know, for corporations but send them on the weekends they go out and they get to play music and they have plenty of money and they have a great house and they take care of themselves that's more interesting to me i don't know where your head is on that but well i i think that all people have basically similar needs and uh you know yeah it's a complex issue but i i, I like people who create uh no matter what their circumstances and uh you know, I think economics are certainly a luxury, and I've met I've, pl I've met pl plenty of miserable millionaires. You know, so it's not yeah, me too. It's not oh, just yeah. about that. You know, so I think uh, just to just to bring it home, I think uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to people about art and creation because there isn't that much commerce to it. And you, you mentioned Crosby. No. I saw a story on Crosby that was put into context how Spotify pays musicians. I think. I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but the, the crux of it was that Crosby made his last record and he had so many million streams and it was in the millions and he made $70,000. And the joke was the Neumann microphone that he sang his vocals in, in the studio cost $70,000. Um, he didn't make, oh my God. he didn't make diddly off of it because music's become commoditized and demonetized. So, you know, yeah. I, it doesn't mean it doesn't change people's hearts. And I think that's what's, what's come through in this interview and a few others. It's like, it's really, even though you like film a little bit more now than music, it, it was clear that music had an impact on your life and, you know, the good times and the bad times and, and has these, 
these transcendent nostalgic characteristics to it that make our lives richer. So appreciate the music okay. you make because uh, your records uh, are that way for a number of us, including myself. So much appreciated. Oh, thank you. And your thank film. You. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. I just wanted to kind of end on a, uh, a positive note there. And uh, is there anything else that you wish we'd talked about to, that you'd like to let the people who either know you or don't know you in the audience about your art or any thoughts you have that you want to close with? Uh, I would say that if you, <laughs> if you get a hold of any of the music that I've been involved in uh, throughout the years, you might like it. I mean, all of it's kind of the Collingwood is the is is all of it come to fruition as far as I'm concerned because mm -hmm. um, I played in Ezra, which is just a couple of people in a band as kids, and then to Purgatory, which evolved into Freak Show, and Freak Show was kind of the foundation for everything. Freak Show, I probably had the most commercial, I guess you could say, success. I remember Freak Show. That was a cool band. Yeah, it was a shock rock metal band. And, you know, those guys, Tom Harvey and Mike Gargiulo and Eric Boland, playing with them early on was so meaningful, you know. And, and, and those that was kind of my formative years were spent with those people. And mm -hmm. if you get a hold of any of that, I think there's some bootleg copies of the stuff. I own the rights to it. I'm probably going to release it sometime. I just, to be honest with you, I don't always feel like putting stuff up online. But I will eventually. And then... The absurd. Also, there were a lot of different people in that band: Jason Croyder, Kevin Cannon, Brian Feely, and mm -hmm. Michael Bolin. Again, stuff that's not—I haven't put it online, but I will. Um, it, listening to it in chronological order, I, I, I'm always interested in what people think of that because mm -hmm. Freak Show definitely gave me my chops, and I played with some extraordinary people in that. So, um, yeah probably kept me very judgmental of my own playing for years. Now I can be a little sloppier. <laughs> Too hard on yourself, my man. Well, I just want to thank you, Chris, uh, for joining the podcast. It, it was really great to dig into the, the vast catalog and your experiences on both on the music side and, and on the film side. And I wish you nothing but luck with the, uh, the new production uh, as we get back to more normal times, hopefully. And I'd like to ask you to remind the listening audience, uh, about your newest project, recording-wise. Again, the Collingwood will be recording a new record with Rich Stagnars of Dasa Studios in Pike Creek, Delaware. That's where we did our previous two albums. And some of the some of the material that we've been playing in the set for a couple of years, like Barracuda and Eggs, Houston Torch, uh, Numbers similar to that will be on the record and then some new songs that i'm really super proud of uh a song called man the light is beautiful here hell is heaven with you angel and one of my favorites jewish songs so it'll be a full-length record probably over an hour's worth of material and again the record is tentatively titled leo after our dog son so looking forward to getting to work on that material after the quarantine ends Indeed. I uh, w wish you lots of luck and uh, everybody luck to getting back to uh, normalcy so we can hurry up and hear that and hear you guys live again. Absolutely, man. One last thing I will ask is, are there any social media places you'd like people to get in contact with you or your band, your film type stuff, if you would, if they're interested? Absolutely. So um, the Collingwood has a Facebook page under The Collingwood and an Instagram page. And of course you can follow the videos on YouTube. Um, mm -hmm. 
And then the film, I do have a film page called Myatin Filmworks that I don't really, it's M-Y-A-T-I-N Filmworks, mm-hmm. but I don't update all that frequently. I'm kind of lousy with any of that stuff. I don't know how you are. You seem to be a, a lot more savvy than I am. Well, I try to divide and conquer and I have a creative side and a nerd business. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I do some of that stuff, but we could all be better. But I think, uh, you know, let's not be critical. I just think people can find your, your work there and it's a great place to explore what you're up to and uh, get to know your stuff better. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, please do. Please friend, friend me and uh, also like my band because I feel like we don't have that many likes on there. I never really sat down and like sent out invites to like tens of thousands of people or anything like some of the other bands have done. Maybe I should sit down and pay more attention to that. Yeah. And I think sometimes now a lot of people are moving to Instagram and, you know, I think there was a lot of fakes and the likes of Facebook that gave it like, Oh my God. Until you get to hundreds of thousands, nobody's going to really pay attention anyway uh, from a record perspective. So I know. And it is a lot of fakes. And Instagram also. And you're like, how do they get that many followers already? And then you figure it out. (laughs) Well, Chris, uh, it's been great talking to you. And I really appreciate you spending the time this afternoon. And I I wish you and your wife uh, the best in these uh, interesting times we live in. Stay healthy, wealthy, and wise. And uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thanks for being an enthusiast, caring about music, and making amazing music yourself. I Uh, appreciate that. You're too kind, Chris. Uh, Glad we're in the same uh, hemisphere. Indeed. (laughs) All right, man. So thanks again to musician and filmmaker Chris Malinowski for joining the podcast Musicology by KMAC, the podcast that unpacks the suitcase of rock. Thanks for tuning in and hope you join me on the next episode. Take care.